Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We have around 6,000 members worldwide and around 50 branches. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 31st of July, 2023, and this is episode 311. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian, teacher and author Peter Welsh about his research into the 3rd Earl of Durham and his service during the Great War. Peter spoke to me from his home in Washington, Tynan Weir. So Peter, welcome back to the podcast. I think for the fourth time, you are our most prevalent speaker. So you now hold the record on on this illustrious vehicle that, upon which we speak. I'm sure that's a great honour and a privilege for you. So today, we're going to talk about the third Earl of Durham. Now, um, to, to try and avoid repeating what you said three times before, how did you become interested in the Great War, and in particular, the third Earl of Durham? Okay, sitting in my study here, if I look out of the window, I'm looking at the famous Worm Hill. Wish, lads, had your gobs, I'll tell you, Zal, an awful story. And that was the hill on which the Harriton Memorial was originally built. Uh, It was on land given by the Earl of Durham to the parish council. He had reserved his mineral rights, of course. Uh, And when we started investigating the names of the 102 First World War soldiers on the Harriton Memorial, it was inevitable that I'd bump into or come across the Third Earl, researching First World War soldiers as the military side of things and the Third Earl more about the home front. So tell us a bit more about the Third Earl. Now, am I correct in assuming he is part of the Lambton dynasty about which you have spoken on two podcasts previously? He is indeed. Uh, The First Earl was Radical Jack, he of the Reform Bill of 1832, a man who'd been ambassador to Russia, solved the Canadian problem, etc. Where there's a first earl, there's often a second, and the second earl was George Frederick Darcy Lambton, and he married Beatrix. They ha- she was one of 13 herself, and they had 13 children. Uh, John George Lambton was born in 1855, one of twins, the eldest son of George Frederick Darcy Lambton and Beatrix. His twin brother was Frederick William, briefly the fourth Earl in 1928. Uh, And Jack's parents would have have another seven sons and four daughters, the final total being 13. So she was one of 13 and had 13 children. Uh, All of them survived into adulthood and even old age. Hedworth, Charles, Beatrix, George, Catherine, William, Claude, Darcy, Eleanor, Anne and Francis were numbers three to 13. So let's let's look at the third Earl. What, what, when did he become the third Earl and what did he do before the war? What sort of person was he? Uh, the second Earl died in 1879 and John George became third Earl. Five years later, he became Lord Lieutenant of County Durham, succeeding the Marquess of Londonderry. As Lord Lieutenant, he was involved in a wide range of activities as sponsor, president, vice president, chairman, patron, any word you can think of, he had a job as that. So Sunderland Infirmary, the River Weir Commissioners, the Shipmaster Society, the British Agricultural Society, Newcastle Farmers Club, Durham County Blind Institute, the Sanitary Institute of Great Britain, the Church of England Temperance Society, Durham County Cricket Club, 
Durham Swimming Club, Sunderland Football Club, Hartlepool Sailors Home, Wearside Golf Club, Pensher Civilian Rifle Club, Durham Orchestral Society, etc., etc., etc. He offered assistance to just as wide a range of activities, associations and the like. So he gave cash, pheasants, venison, evergreens, coal and, of course, money. Though at one stage he owned 14 pits and a fleet of 20 colliers uh, that came in and out of Sunderland mostly, the administration of his coal empire was generally left to his agents. But he supported the Miners' Relief Fund, new churches, old folks' dinners. He made Lampton Park, uh, where the castle is situated, available for many different local organisations. As Lord Lieutenant, Jack was a great opener and unveiler of things. He had a collection of addresses and silver trowels. Shire Hall, Durham Johnson School, Sunderland Dock, Roker Pier and Lighthouse, Sunderland Police Station and Courts, the Queen Alexandra Bridge over the River Weir, the Jack Crawford of Camperdown Memorial, and he was also a very uh, on one occasion Mayor of Durham for a year. So how did his uh, private life fit around these civic and municipal responsibilities as well as his business interests? Jack married Emily Milner, a very beautiful girl, in October 1882. And there's much to be said about the marriage and the reasons for it. I think it was uh, her mother that pushed it. But in short, it didn't end well, with Jack attempting but failing to divorce Emily in 1885 on the grounds that she was insane when they married. The newspapers had a field day. Crowds turned up each day at the courts in London the divorce courts, to see the beautiful and au courant cast of witnesses on both sides. You had archbishops uh, disagreeing with other archbishops and lords and ladies uh, all involved, even down to the servants sometimes. Jack lost his case and was blackballed at the Marlborough Club, while Ethel, now agreed by everybody to be insane, though probably not insane when they married, was confined to private care for the rest of her life. Recently, I read an article by Ruth Paley from Oxford Brookes University suggesting that Emily was perhaps suffering from autism spectrum disorder, which made her behaviour very difficult and very strange. Jack did have a son known as John Harriton, also John Rudge, parts of Harriton Parish being part of the Lampton Estate, and Rudge being the birth name of Letty Lind, the actress and dancer with whom Jack had an affair after uh, his divorce uh, case. John Harriton served in the DLI during the Great War. He spent some time at Craig, Craig Lockhart Hospital at the same time as Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen. He was suffering from neurasthenia and never returned to active service. The Earl then had no legitimate heir, but he was brought forward as a correspondent by David de Bensode, uh, cited along with, the, uh, with Lord Lonsdale as a correspondent but for some reason, he was not involved in the court case. Probably, uh, he probably paid it off. Like many of his class, Jack liked to shoot things. He shot tigers in India, cubs in Utah, which I assume were mountain lions, anything with fur or feathers that moved on his estate in Durham. Examples, when George V visited in 1913, the party shot 2,000 birds in a day. And in 1897, poulterers were advising pheasants shot by the Prince of Wales, though the Hartlepool Northern Daily Mail didn't think there could have been that many pheasants in the county. They were like pieces of the true cross, thousands of them. But also, 
He shot birds in a variety of Scottish locations, uh, spent weeks up and around Glen Affric in August and September. January and February, he was often be found in Cannes or some other society Riviera resort. But he also found time to visit Spain, Germany, Baden-Baden, Switzerland and Egypt. He liked to race horses, was a member of the Jockey Club from 1891. He attended race meetings all over the country. He was outspoken about those who tried to limit gambling, calling them faddists. The faddist, he said, being a cross between a Pharisee and a lunatic. Human instincts, he thought, should not be turned into a crime, though there were measures that might be taken to control the gambling craze. The Lord's Day Observance Society, he said, would make every Sabbath as dull as they could. In July 1891, Lord Durham bought part of the Exning House estate near Newmarket. He had the house, cottages and stables refurbished. Reading the description, you think that some of the miners he employed would have been happier to live in the stables there than in the pit rows of Philadelphia, Harriton, Fatfield, etc. During the war, as might be imagined, Lord Durham was one of those who strongly resisted the suspension of horse racing. The social scene brought him into contact with General Grant and Andrew Carnegie, both of whom visited Lambton. Uh, as well as large numbers of British nobility and royalty. Quite a number of personal and gossipy letters in the Lambton Archive, exchanged by Jack and his brothers, General Sir William and Admiral Hedworth, with the King and the Prince of Wales as well, being involved in the correspondence, discussing events, intrigues, which general was useless and which general was good, uh, how bad the soldiers were, uh, how beastly the Germans were, what happened on the visits to... Um, the Lady of the Night in Paris. Oh, fascinating stuff. Politically, as the grandson of Radical Jack, who'd been a prime mover behind the Reform Bill of 1832, the Third Earl was a Liberal, but he became a Liberal Unionist in 1887 when the issue of Home Rule split the Liberal Party at the time of Gladstone. His support of the Empire was vigorous. He believed it to be a good thing that Britain had an empire on which the sun never set. An empire founded on... Truth, justice and freedom. Other opinions are available. So we've sort of touched on his um, his pre-war activities, which seem to follow the sort of general pattern of many people, um, probably at Downton Abbey. Yeah. Let's, let's turn to the Great War. Given I'm ga gathering he was probably too old to fight. So what did he do during the conflict? Well, August the 7th, 1914, the Durham Advertiser's leader article read as follows. With the suddenness of a summer thunderstorm, the war cloud has descended upon Europe. And before the nations have had time to grasp the tremendous significance of the fact, they find themselves engaged in the most terrible conflict the world has ever known. The author of the article, I suspect, had no idea of how terrible the conflict was actually going to become. This meant the cancellation of the poor people's outing from Newcastle to Lambton. About a thousand had been looking forward to it. And they were going to be in 31 buses. But Lord Durham and Lady Anne were unable to attend due to the crisis. The crisis was actually now the war. Lord Durham was immediately active in fundraising. In August 1914, he was asking for contributions to the Prince of Wales National Relief Fund. He personally put aside £1,000, which, checking on Google, is perhaps worth £140,000 today. And that was for use in Durham. Contributions of money to a variety of relief organisations and funds continued throughout the war. 
The Chesley Street Relief Committee received £100 from Lord Durham. Belgian Relief Fund meeting in Sunderland, featuring 10 wounded Belgian soldiers on stage. Uh, and all of this was before the Belgian refugees arrived. Uh, the 6,000 of them found their way to Burtley, just down the road from Lampton Castle, where the Elizabethville settlement was established and where most worked in a large ordnance factory. You can Google the Burtley Belgians. Anyway, the King Edward VII Memorial Fund was also raising money for use in hospitals, convalescent homes. He gave 30 guineas toward, towards providing bands for the DLI territorial battalions. Gave the Durham County Sailors Flag Day £100. He gave the DLI Prisoners of War Fund £100 and had subscribed £200 a month to that. A donation of £50 to the Lord Mayor of Newcastle's War Information Office. Lord Roberts' Memorial Workshop for Disabled Soldiers got £500. Remember, all these figures must be multiplied by 90, thereabouts. He gave £500 for the Durham Tank Day, featuring the tank Egbert. And he also contributed money when Egbert visited Burtley and Hortonley Spring. Staggeringly, Lord Boyne gave £33,000 to Tank Day. Multiply by 90? Wow. Uh, the Earl of Durham was obliged to point out that my contribution might look very small compared to that of Lord Boyne, but more than two years ago, I put all the money I could scrape together into the war loan, and that is why I can only put in driblets now. But I mean to go on doing it as long as I've got the money. I ask all present to do what they can. Well, compared to his wealth, his contributions may be seen as small, when he sold his 14 mines and 20 ships to Lord Joyce in 1896, he got, according to the Concert Gazette, a paper that would know, because Lord Joyce was from Concert, a cheque, the largest ever written, of £4 million, multiply by 90. In 1915, Lord Durham put up £1,000 toward the creation of a DLI Bantam Battalion, Bob's Bantams, and he also gave free use of Cock and Hall to train the 18th DLI. There are some fantastic, clear photographs of that training in the Durham County Record Office, which are available. Lampton Park was made available for a variety of events, including the Munitionettes Party in 1917. The Munitionettes being the girls from Armstrong's vast arms complex on the River Tyne. And part of uh, Lampton Castle became a hospital. He even gave Fatfield School some land for a small allotment to grow vegetables. Now, as Lord Lieutenant of Durham, he obviously was at the forefront of recruitment and general uh, activities to raise uh, soldiers and probably conscription when it came in in 1916. Tell us about that. The Earl was chair of Durham Volunteers and was often involved with their camps and parades and the like. He'd been a lieutenant himself in the Coldstream Guards, but without a war to fight, had found it dull, he said. So this from August 1914, he was asking for 100,000 men immediately required, and that would uphold the traditions of the county and the glorious records of our faithful Durhams, faithful being the, the kind of nickname of the Durhams, by showing in the present grave emergency that our patriotism impels us to make every sacrifice and every personal effort in defence of the honour of the empire. He led, occasionally supported by the Bishop of Durham, meetings at Concert, Seam, Houghtonley Spring, Shiny Row, Ledgate, Heaven, Stanley, all the outlying areas and the, on the coal field, the great Durham coal field. Uh, <clears throat> one at Wheatley Hill, where Peter Lee, after whom a local town was later named, 
the uh, South Hetton, Newcastle's Theatre Royal, as well as Bellico's denunciations of German atrocities and frightfulness, he was able to talk about his visit to his brother, General Sir William, on the Western Front. He'd been to Ypres and inspected men of the 2DLI. He was able to point to his eight brothers who'd all enlisted, included a couple of generals and an admiral, and the sons of his twin and his brothers-in-law. He often said that he was sad to be too old to fight. After October 1914, he was able to point to the death of his brother Francis uh, on the Western Front and nephew Geoffrey, who'd both been killed in action. He hoped women would advise their men to go, that the Kaiser would recognise that an army of a million was by no means contemptible, and that he'd rather shoot himself than be a shirker. December 1914, he got himself into hot water by stating that 22,000 men had attended a football match at Roker Park and that he was almost hard-hearted enough to wish that the Germans would drop a shell on those who played football on Saturday afternoons. The Stockton Herald, that wasn't a fan of Lord Durham, uh, pointed out that as a steward of the Jockey Club, Lord Durham should denounce the holding of race meetings, which might last all day, before starting to utter violent diatribes against football. Um, at a later meeting at the Victoria Hall in Sunderland, uh, where there were ladies singing songs, wounded soldiers, the national anthems of all the allies were being played, Lord Durham was able to expand on his bombs on Roker Park speech, said he'd been told that 9% of men registered as players by the Durham Football Association had joined up. Typically, he didn't withdraw his remarks, but asked about the other 90%. In December, he got his way when the Germans did drop bombs. Well, actually, they fired shells on the Hartlepool Rovers uh, rugby ground in the attack on the northeast coast. Lord Durham went to inspect the damage, later complained to the War Office and spoke in the House of Lords, uh, complaining that no government assessors of damage had yet visited Hartlepool. As far as military tribunals were concerned, Lord Durham sat on several of these. In March 1916 at Hartlepool, 270 cases were slated for a hearing and Lord Durham would be one of five men on the bench. He also attended at South Shields and Sunderland and Durham. In 1916, he appeared at the Rural Tribunal himself to appeal for his land agent and farm steward. And surprisingly, Mr Gray was exempted. As far as conscription was concerned, he said... Uh, in 1915, so before conscription began and quite early in the peace, I consider it is the duty of His Majesty's government to adopt compulsory measures to mobilise and to organise the hundreds of thousands of men of military age who ought to take an active part. Uh, he also wanted to make sure that the word Durham was included in the title, not North East and certainly not Newcastle. As his aristocratic sisters did in Wiltshire and Yorkshire and London, Lord Durham was involved in the need to recruit a new workforce for agriculture. First meeting of County War Agriculture Committee was at Shire Hall in December 1915, and Lord Durham was present. Uh, district committees were set up, and he was appealing for women agricultural workers on behalf of the War Agricultural Board. Um, and in April 1916, the Sunderland Echo carried a report of a meeting at New Harrington Miners Hall, where Lord Durham actually gave his own speech about women 
taking up work on the land. So that that pretty well covers his personal donations to the war effort, his activities to help recruitment and increase industrial and agricultural production. I'm assuming there were other areas of the home front in which he took an interest. Yeah, uh, he was involved in the food economy programme, meeting at Chesley Street. Lady Anne Lambton, he said, his sister, who never married and never really left his side very much, Uh, His sister had dieted him strictly. We should eat sufficient to keep fit, but not to get fat. And everyone at Lampton Castle had done the same thing. He implored everybody to economise in the matter of food as much as possible and helped by offering land in various parts of the county for allotments. Shooting on his estates was ended for the duration. There's a sacrifice now. 60 acres on the Lampton Estate, known as the Racecourse, had been planted with oats and corn uh, at various times, and all the Lampton's gardens had been turned over to vegetables. He was often involved in proposals for helping the wounded and disabled. Thus, in a letter to Asquith, which is in the Bodleian Library, it's important that you should announce at once that provision will be made by state pensions for widows and orphans and mothers dependent on soldiers who die on active service, even if they died on active service in England. He added, I receive letters nearly every day from Durham recruits asking me to help about bounties and wives' allowances and their own pay, which are in arrears. They don't understand red tape, war office memoranda, which fall on them like autumn leaves. And I don't either, he added. Uh, He was involved in the Chesley Street Pensions Committee, And if you were uh, the wife or the widow or any dependent of a sailor or or soldier uh, who'd served in the present war, then they should apply to the committee for their areas. And the Harriton Committee uh, was the Earl of Durham, basically, and his sister, Lady Anne. So your comments suggest that the Earl was a pretty vigorous speaker, not afraid to call it a spade or spade. He was used to being deferred to and praised for what he said. And in the circumstances, perhaps it's no surprise that he called the Kaiser Satan or Germans cruel, devilish murderers. In 1915, he spoke of poisonous gases and every other devilish invention against our gallant troops, poisoned wells in Africa, submarine warfare, cold-blooded and deliberate murder of the passengers of the Lusitania, mocking and jeering, drowning men. And throughout the whole of the war, not one single attempt on the part of the Germans to save a single British seaman. Those were the enemies that they had to fight against and for which they implored young men to offer their services. In August 1918, he said, what we want and what we will do, if it takes us years, is to dictate terms to the Germans. And this, of course, was before or just before the the resurgence of the Allies, if you like, starting at uh, Amiens. Conversations will be all very well when the Germans have held up their hands and have said, we've had enough. Until then, let us talk to them in the only way in which they can understand. Talk to them with a rifle, with a sharp bayonet at the end of it. Talk to them with depth charges for the murderous submarines. Talk with bombs from our airships and aeroplanes. He added that they were untrustworthy and had broken all the commandments. And prior to the signing of the treaty at Versailles in 1919, he said, the war is not over yet and we have not got a peace which would keep the Germans in their proper place, which was under our thumbs for many years to come. Let's turn to the post-war. What did he do after the conflict had ended? 
Well, it was a time for memorials and reflection on what had been achieved and what it had cost. Thank God, he said, that Durham proved second to none in sacrifice. Uh, I was listening to your contributor on a recent podcast, Clive Harris, I think it was, talking about London. And he was proud of what London had done. And clearly, Lord Durham and those of us who live up here were proud of what the DLI and the Durham people had done. Uh, he paid tribute to the Durham County Committee for war savings, which had been highly successful, controlling a thousand local associations with whom have been invested in war bonds and certificates, 30 million, uh, and multiply by 90. In February 1919, he paid warm tribute to the women of the VAD, the Red Cross and John's Ambulance. There'd been 28 hospitals opened in County Durham, 1,500 beds equipped, 37,000 patients treated, uh, and 1,200 VAD members on hospital service. He unveiled war memorials, Washington, Courtney Spring, Pelton, Hartlepool, Castle Eden, Concert, and Durham City, and was represented often by one of his brothers or one of his agents at most of the other unveilings. He was not, however, present when the county memorial column was unveiled by Lord Londonderry at Durham Cathedral in November 1928. It had taken so long for them to decide what was the most appropriate that he died in the meantime. In November 1920, when the colours of 12 of the 31 battalions of the DLI were consecrated and laid up at Durham Cathedral, Lord Durham was the leader of the procession. And on a personal note, he unveiled two stained glass windows to his brother and nephew in Burnmoor Church in 1919, Francis and Geoffrey. He refused to be made responsible for the allocation of German guns as tokens of victory because the war office had put aside what he described as a niggardly amount for Durham. Interestingly, uh, although people seemed to want a gun early on, uh, they finished up not wanting German guns. Washington turned one down. There was a a prospect of one being on the village green. And the one in Durham Marketplace uh, was rolled through the streets and dumped in the river in the drunkenness and high jinks when the Treaty of Versailles was announced in June 1919. We'll have no German guns here. He was a regular attender at meetings and welcome homes and presentations of medals for demob troops and the, the comrades of the Great War events and regimental dinners and reunions. And just before I had me gob, I should point out that he did give the land for Harrod Memorial on the top of Worm Hill. So, how would you sum how sorry how would you sum up the uh, third Earl's contribution to the war effort? Okay, <clears throat> what can one man do in a war? Given his position as Lord Lieutenant of the County and his wealth, and to be fair to him, his sense of duty, which was overriding, it was inevitable that he'd have a finger in every pie and would offer a range of donations. He did have reservations about some individual government policies. He pushed for conscription and disagreed with the level of restrictions on racing, but he railed against those often ambitious newspaper men who tried to raise doubts and disturbances. There was nothing, he said, more degrading and disgusting than the insinuations that those who were responsible for the government of the country were not doing their best. He admitted that at times the government had made blunders, sometimes too slow to act, sometimes in too much of a hurry to act without thinking. But I have never for one moment doubted their patriotism. For Lord Durham, in his speeches, it was always about the honour and the survival of the empire and about the bravery 
of the Durham lads and lasses. And one final thing that's just occurred to me is where did you get the archives for this? What sources did you use? Right, there's a book by Sir John Colville called Those Lamptons, which is a fairly racy run through many generations of the family. But I did have access briefly to some letters in the Lampton archive. It's not easy to get in there. I suspect the letters will eventually be sold to Durham, or the archive will be sold to Durham University for uh, tax reasons. But there are letters in the Bodleian Library. Hertfordshire County Record Office has quite a quite a collection about the divorce, uh, because that's where Emily came from. And also, I have gone through, believe it or not, during lockdown, every single mention of Lord Durham in the British newspaper file. So we've got 220,000 words, places that he went, things that he did, things that he said, which will eventually be given to Durham County Record Office. Um, or, of course, I'm happy to uh, to answer questions or supply people with information if they get in touch with me. Pete Welsh, Gettysburg at btinternet.com. That is my email address as opposed to my Gettysburg address. Uh, or people can go on the, the website, Washington and the Great War, which is www.mp.weebly.com. Peter? Thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. And what an honour it is to be uh, number one in the charts on the Western Front Association podcast. Thrilled. <laughs> you have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time... <laughs>